0: Well, I just want to give a shout out before I begin. Uh, We're celebrating Laity Sunday today. I didn't know if y'all knew that or not. But thank you so much to our ushers, to our acolytes, to our helpers with the liturgy, our uh, readers of scripture, our entire congregation, for all of everything that you do as ministers of Jesus Christ in our world. I want to thank you on my own behalf and on the behalf of the entire church of Jesus Christ. Thank you. The passage that you just heard read this morning from Deuteronomy has often been interpreted as teaching us something about leadership. And I don't doubt that godly leadership is involved on some level in this passage, or that those who have interpreted the passage have done so rightly. However, as I wrestled with this passage this past week, and it took some doing, <laughs> I came to a completely different resolution, I guess, with, with this passage that I wanted to share with you this morning. And it has nothing at all to do with leadership, and nothing at all even to do with followership. There are two things about God in my life that make God extraordinary to me. And I don't know what they are for you, but for me the first is that I experience God as the God who adopts me. The God who makes me his own beloved child. Through Jesus Christ, I receive the spirit of adoption so that I cry out to my Father, Daddy, Abba, God. God is my real dad. Even my birth father, my earthly father, Leon Pomeroy, recognized that God only loaned me to him for a brief time. And he made me well aware of the fact that he was in all regards, in his own mind, my foster father. My real father is my father in heaven. And he raised me to love him and to serve him. And gave me a great example of the love of my heavenly father to follow. But the second thing about God has to do with the passage here this morning. and So I've been excited to share this with you. The second thing about God that makes God absolutely extraordinary to me, is that he is the God who goes with me. God is a God who goes with us as his people. So in order to understand what's happening here in Deuteronomy, we have to go back to Exodus. Exodus. Back to Exodus chapter 33 and probably even before that. The story basically goes in Exodus that God had brought the people out of Egypt. And they had gone through a time of testing and trial and temptation where they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was just nasty out there in the wilderness. They were fully tempted And on several occasions made it very clear to Moses, what have you done? Brought us out here to die? Let's just go back to Egypt where at least we have food. Where at least we have shelter. The hostile and barren landscape and the torturous journey through the unforgiving terrain. was almost too much for him. But God intervened. Time and time and time again he intervened. And finally they made it to Mount Sinai, to the mountain of God. And God's presence manifested as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as he went with them. But once they reached the mountain of God, Moses climbs the mountain and ends up being gone for over a month. The people don't know what happened to him. They assume he's dead because there's no water or food up there. They don't know if he's been eaten by a wild animal, or maybe he's struck down by hunger, or maybe even slain by God himself. Maybe he did something to displease God, and God got angry with him. They didn't know if they were going to see Moses again or not. So I think maybe we can be a little compassionate when we see them forge this idol, this golden calf. They worship it as Yahweh. They're not committing idolatry, per se. They're still worshiping God, but they're worshiping him according to their own ideas of how God should be worshiped rather than according to God's desire for him to be worshipped they're wanting to fit God into their nice little box and ultimately they want to exercise control over God and that becomes their great sin they put themselves first and so of course in the end God sends Moses back down the mountain to witness the sin of the people their great failure was to trust God That God wasn't leading them out to die in the wilderness. And that failure to trust God foreshadowed their ultimate failure to trust God that would eventually lead to their destruction and exile from the land of promise. This land of promise that they hadn't even laid eyes on yet at this point. The sin of the people makes them unclean. And so God withdraws his presence. So in Exodus 33, we see that God only appears at the tent of meeting that Moses sets up way outside the camp. And then, only when Moses is present, so that he can serve as the mediator between God and his people. He becomes a distant God. At least in the experience of the people of Israel. And so Moses himself is frustrated and scared for his own part, and so he expresses that to God. And I think we would be remiss to forget that when God first called Moses to be his prophet, Moses was only satisfied that he could respond fully to that calling when God promised finally to be with him. To go with him. Yeah, it's great that my staff turns to a snake. It's great that I've got Aaron to, to come and be my spokesperson. It's great that I can, you know, fit my hand in, in my cloak and then pull it out and it's leprous and I can put it back and then it's healed. But none of that really matters unless, God, you go with me. And, of course... God assures Moses that he'll go with him. And then, and only then, does Moses finally respond yes to God's call on him to be his prophet. And so now, again, God replies to Moses' fear and frustration by affirming that Moses and the people have still found favor in God's sight, which is just basically an an Old Testament way of saying that God's chosen to show them his grace and his mercy and his, his compassion. But God attempts to calm Moses' fears, knowing it's not going to work, mind you. But God attempts to calm Moses' fears by promising to send his angel before Moses and before the people. And to watch over them. That's just not enough for Moses. Moses is not satisfied with that. Because he knows that that doesn't make them any different than any other nation on the face of the earth. It is only the presence of God with them that makes them a holy nation. And that gives them any chance of succeeding in this calling that God has on their lives. In Exodus 33, verse 13 recounts Moses' plea to God to show him God's ways. And here, I think, is where we find the heart of both the passage in Exodus and our passage this morning in Deuteronomy 31. When Moses begs God to show him God's ways, Moses was asking that God reveal to him who God is and what resides in God's very being. So think about that for a moment. If I were to ask you this morning to show me your ways, how would you respond? What would you say? If I were to ask you to teach me what is in your very soul, what is it that makes you uniquely you, what would you teach me? But this request is much more than God revealing to Moses what is in the heart of God. It's much more than that. It's something profoundly relational. Moses is not a student learning from his teacher. Moses is a human being asking the God of the universe if he might join him in living life together with him. This is something profoundly intimate. This is the request of a man on his knees before the one he desires to live for for the rest of his life. It's akin to a marriage proposal. That metaphor is used extensively in Scripture to describe our relationship with our God and the covenant that exists between God and his people. God's answer to Moses' request is an unequivocal yes. Yes. God not only promises to be with Moses and the people, that he's not just merely going to send his angel before them and watch over them, but that he will, in fact, be with them. But God further grants Moses his add-on request. Moses goes even beyond that and asks that God would show him his glory. With the result that God passes by Moses, takes up in, him up in his own hand and sets him on the cliff on the ledge of a rock. That gentle, gentle fatherly touch and then covers his eyes and says, I'm going to pass by you. And you watch. When I let, let you see, when I, uh, I remove my hand so that you can see, you will see all of my goodness pass by you. You'll see something that no one has ever seen before. And no one will ever see again until that moment of the resurrection of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think Exodus chapter 33 is one of the most emotionally charged, most intimate passages of Scripture, of the entire Bible for me. It's downright beautiful to see this interaction between a man of faith and his God in whom he places that faith. For Moses, is. It was so important, so vitally important, that God be present with his people that it became a deal-breaker for him. He says, God, if you don't go with us, then don't lead us up at all. And he was right to do so. And for you and for me this morning, that means that if God doesn't go with us, We ought not to go at all. We ought not to go at all. So now we can finally get back to Deuteronomy 31. I want you to watch carefully now what happens here. Moses and the people are on the east bank of the Jordan River. They can see Canaan on the other side of the river. They're within eyeshot of this place that they've been traveling to for 40 years. But Moses begins his speech by surprising all of them. The entire Hebrew people at this point have only ever known the leadership of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, just a few chapters over, you read that Moses dies. But when he dies, he is still strong. As though in the prime of life, his eyes have not gone bad, and his youthful vigor has not abated. Yet here, three chapters before his death, Moses says that he can't get around anymore. And what he means to say is that God has restricted his movement. That he is not able to cross the Jordan with the people. That his time has come to an end. And the confusion is cleared up in the understanding of Moses' total dedication to the will of God. And we see the explanation here in the next few verses. Moses goes on to say that it is God who will go with the people into Canaan. But then, of course, he also says that it's Joshua who's going to go with the people into Canaan. Again, this is yet another confusing statement, unless we hear it with the ears of the Hebrews who heard Moses speak that day. If you read back in Numbers chapter 13, Moses had changed Joshua's name from Hoshea to Joshua. And this is important for us to understand this morning, just like it was important for Joshua to understand at that moment, as you eventually see in Scripture. In ancient Hebrew, hoshea means salvation or deliverance. It's a generic term. It's just salvation. And it probably referred to that kind of militant mentality among the Hebrews during that, their captivity in Egypt. But Joshua means God's salvation. God's deliverance. When Moses says that God is the one who will lead the people and that Joshua will lead the people, in that moment, Moses made Joshua the living representative of God in their midst. Just as Moses had been for over 40 years. The people would have understood that God was the one. God was the one who would be their salvation. And that Joshua was not some mere president or king of the people. He wasn't some mere ruler. He was the prophet of God. He was the prophet of God who saves his people. Who brings salvation to his people, They would have understood the play on words that Moses was using to communicate the way God was going with them and the importance of their dependence upon the presence of Yahweh God in their midst. And finally, Moses encourages the people by prophesying that God will dispossess the Canaanites before them. Just as he had done before. And the Hebrew people had no military tradition. They'd been slaves for 400 years. They had no skill in war. They had no even communal memory of being at war or having a need to be at war. So it was literally God who fought for Israel. A theme that is replete in the book of Joshua, when you read through Joshua. God delivered the people from the Amorites, from Og and Sihon, the kings of the Amorites that are mentioned here in Deuteronomy 31. God delivered the people. The Amorite armies would have made them the slaves of the Amorites, just like Pharaoh had made them the slaves of the Egyptians. It was only God's salvation, Joshua, God's salvation, that had preserved them, and the people knew it. They no longer held any delusions of grandeur to think that they could liberate Canaan on their own as they had tried to do back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. They knew it was the presence of God that was the only thing that made them who they were, that made them uniquely them. And it was only by tending to their relationship with God that God would continue to be welcomed into their midst. This morning, I want you to understand That God goes with you. God goes with you. And if you don't take God with you, you ought not to go. God will go wherever you go. So don't go without him. God is not content to leave well enough alone. He's not content to merely protect you and send his angels to take charge over you. God goes with you. He's there for you if you'll let him be. That friend in time of trouble, that bolstering presence amidst temptation, that calm peace and consolation in time of grief, and that quiet, still, small voice amidst the chaos of our lives. God is present to you. He beckons you this morning to be present with him. Will you make the decision this morning to be present with God, to recognize that your relationship with him is all that matters in this life? Will you be present to God Both today and from now on. Let's pray.